This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Part of the church calendar. That part of the church calendar that we've just entered into is Lent. And Lent, even if you didn't like grow up in a particularly liturgical kind of church where you followed the different seasons of the church calendar, Lent is one that you had probably grew up hearing about because at least the Catholic people that you knew gave stuff up. And maybe you gave something up for Lent too when you were growing up, you know, like chocolate or cigarettes or something like that, right? You should just give up cigarettes, not just for Lent, but just altogether. Uh, Lent is a period of time uh, that anticipates this move towards the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection, which we observe on Easter Sunday, like the biggest day of the Christian calendar, Easter Sunday. And so Lent is a time of preparation. It's a time of uh, mourning. It's a time of grief. It's a time of anticipation. When uh, Cameron and I decided a couple years ago to start preaching through the church calendar together, Uh, One of the things that we wanted to do to help sort of bridge the gap between these times of uh, of focus on different pieces of the church's story and church tradition that maybe we're not really familiar with is we decided to come up with like sermon themes for each of these calendar seasons. And so we're entering into Lent, so that means we're entering into a new sermon theme. And uh, I want to review for you kind of what we've been doing since Advent, since we kind of leaned hard into uh, the church calendar. So uh, Cameron and I, just so you know, like we sit down and we look at the lectionary texts for each of these seasons. We read through them. There's four for each Sunday. And so we read through them and we look like, what are the themes that kind of connect these texts together from week to week? And then we try to come up with one that seems to make sense for our congregation and the things that maybe we're facing as a community together. So back in Advent, those uh, weeks leading up to Christmas, we explored the theme of waiting. And then Christmas, we celebrated for two Sundays, and we explored the theme of identity. Epiphany, which just ended, it started with the baptism of Jesus, it ends with the transfiguration of Jesus. The season of Epiphany, we explored this theme of a new season has begun. And now in Lent, we are going to look at this theme of when God provides. And these are stories of provision and responsibility in the Old Testament. So, so far in the church year, in the lectionary, we've been following the gospel readings mostly, but now we're going to look primarily at some Old Testament readings and look at the ways that God provides for people in the Old Testament, and then what that means for us. Like, what is the responsibility that comes with God's provision? So, the lectionary has us starting at the very beginning in Genesis 2, at some of the first things that God provided for humanity and some of the first responsibilities that humanity had. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that uh, today's text, even though it's very familiar, we're going to spend a lot of time actually looking at it, maybe from a a new direction. Sometimes the familiar texts are the ones that we know least well, because we think we have them all figured out. So we're going to look at this text in Genesis 2 and the text in Genesis 3 pretty closely. And what that, that means is that like, I'm just going to be sticking in the text a whole lot, I'm not going to be using a lot of surfing metaphors like our friend Cameron does. Also, I don't surf, so I couldn't really use those metaphors. Or rock climbing metaphors, because also, I don't rock climb. 
So I really just have to rely on the Bible. I will tell you one story of how this sort of connects to what, what I'm going through in my own life right now, uh, but that'll be towards the end. So wait with bated breath and we will get there. So we're going to start with the, the Genesis 2 text. Uh, this kind of sets up this Genesis 3 bit about the fall, this really familiar text about how sin enters into the world, at least according to the, the Judeo-Christian uh, story. And like I said, I, th- I think that we have made this text super familiar. We're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. There's a garden, there's trees, like don't touch that one. Uh, you did, serpent, Adam, Eve, like the whole thing just went awry. We get it, there's sin in the world. But let's look a little closer at the text and, and let's see what we can notice in the Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Again, we just heard Karen read it. I love it when Karen reads anything, but especially our scriptures. We hear in the Genesis 2 text that the man is put in the garden to work it and take care of it. That man is given freedom to eat from any tree in the garden, except for the one, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the consequence for going across that boundary line is that death would enter into the man. There are a few things that I think in my closer observation of the text that I I found notable for us today. One is this word put. God put man in the garden. If you look at this word in Hebrew and look at the other places it's used throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that most places that this is used, it's actually translated not put, but it's translated rest. It's translated safety. It's used as a word for dedication. You see, God didn't put man in the garden because God needed weeds pulled. God put man in the garden because God had prepared a place, a place of rest and a place of safety, a place that God had dedicated for humanity to dwell. And the prohibition of that one tree, when God says, don't eat, we're going to look at this in depth a little bit later, but don't eat from that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think we go really quickly to questions about, well, why would God do that? And we'll explore that in just a minute. And why death? Maybe we'll explore that too. But one of the things it does is it sets God up to continue to be the one that determines what is good. God gets to say, all of these trees are good for you. This one is not. Leaving really nothing for the humans to try to figure out and discern about what is good and what is evil. God has told them what is good for them and what is not good for them. And their expectation there is that they'll trust God and obey God. And that's what God was doing all through Genesis 1. And we didn't read anything out of Genesis 1, but all through Genesis 1, God is creating things, looking at it, and judging that it is good. God gets to determine what is good. This Old Testament scholar that I really like to read, uh, his name is Walter Brueggemann. And he uh, looks and says that there are kind of three things in this passage. This passage uh, in Genesis 2 is uh, what he calls this wonderful theology of anthropology, which is a very scholarly thing to say. He says there's three things that happen in this passage that tell us about humankind right from the very beginning. One is that God gives humans a vocation 
Two is that God gives humans freedom. And three is that God gives humans a prohibition. Vocation. He, he calls the people to work and to care for this garden. Work existed even before sin. Work existed before sin. It got harder. You look in Genesis 3, it, it got harder after sin. But we were created to work. So when we imagine like what this is all going to be like when Christ returns and we are judged and hopefully we are let into the new heavens and the new earth, will we be sitting around all day? No, I think from this story we can expect that we will work and we will find enjoyment and fulfillment in that work. Because we have a vocation, we have been called by God to work. We've been given freedom. God permits humans a lot of freedom in this passage. We focus on the one thing that God says not to do, but did you notice what he said you could do? Eat from literally any of the other trees. They're all good for you. But then he gives a prohibition about that one tree with no explanation. But he still expects obedience. Brueggemann says that all three of these things, vocation, freedom, and prohibition, are necessary for what he calls a divinely ordered life. If you take away any one of these and things get out of balance, vocation without, and freedom without prohibition, well, that's just a self-centered relativism. Freedom and prohibition without vocation, it's just a kind of aimless nihilism. And vocation and prohibition without some freedom, that's just mindless legalism. We need all three of these to live as God created us. When I've heard other sermons on Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, they almost all exclusively focus on the prohibition part, the sin part, what humanity got wrong and the consequences of that. And they rarely focus on this idea of vocation or the source and the limitations of our freedom. I want to explore all three of them, and we're going to spend a good chunk on the prohibition part. But the prohibition part, I think, doesn't make sense unless we understand those other two, vocation and freedom. So we're going to look at all of them today, and we're going to see that how, when they're properly placed, they can serve as an antidote to a lot of the anxieties that we face in our own lives today. Let's look first at this idea of vocation. Who knows what vocation is? You guys should know. Anybody know? Like, what what do you think of when you hear the word vocation? Yeah, job, right? This, is, this gets a lot of play in the circles that I spend most of my working life in, in Christian higher education. Like, at the university that I work at, we talk about vocation all the time. Like, we're going to help you find your vocation. We're going to equip you for your vocation. We will release you into your vocation. What does it even mean, though? It's from this Latin word, vocatio which literally means a call or a summons. And the Christian church is the one that really kind of like vaulted this idea of vocation uh, into the world. They said there is a caller, that's God, and that caller issues a vocation, a call or a summons to some people to serve God. And for a long time, like in the Catholic church, this was really just a, a limited kind of calling. It was a call to the priesthood, or a call to monastic orders. 
So to have a vocation in the Catholic sense is to be called into service of the church in some very explicit sort of way. With the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they greatly expanded this idea of vocation. And they said, well, really anything can be a vocation. Any, God can call people to any kind of work. They're trying to redeem this idea of work and get rid of this notion that there is sacred work and secular work. But they said that there are different categories of vocation. There's a kind of general vocation, a, a call that God issues to everyone. This is the vocation, that kind of general vocation is the call to salvation. That we are all called to repent and believe the good news as we spent much of Epiphany exploring. But then there's also a specific kind of vocation that we can come to understand as well. God calls individuals to specific realms of work, to specific occupations and careers. Sometimes we use the word calling to talk about this. What is your calling? I know the students that go to my university are sick of that question. What do you feel you're being called to do? But we get this idea of calling right here from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, we learn that we are imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. And God is at work creating and caring for things. And as image bearers, we are also called, vocatio, to create and to care for things, though of a different order and on a different level. And in chapter 2, we see this specified even a little more. We see that we're called to work and to care for the garden, the garden in which God has put us for both work and rest. Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he picks up this idea, and he writes that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So followers of Christ cannot escape this idea that God actively issues a call to each of us, a vocation that we are to fulfill. But I think that we've kind of twisted this idea. I know that we have twisted this idea. We've turned this into some sort of divine treasure hunt, and we don't have a map. God is sitting up there in heaven, in heaven and he has an incredibly detailed plan for your life. And God's looking on the page and seeing every choice that you could come to and judging whether you choose rightly or you choose wrongly. Got that one right. Got that one wrong. Got that one wrong. Got that one wrong. Got that one right. And it's like, what are we supposed to do? We start to get this calling anxiety. What if I choose wrong? And how deep does vocation go? Is it just the kind of career I'm called to? Or is it a specific company? If it's a specific company, is it to a specific role in that company? We extend this to other areas of our life as well. We extend this to spouses. Is there one person out there that God has created for me? A soulmate? What if I choose the wrong person? Will I be less than happy? Will they be less than happy? Am I robbing someone else of their soulmate? What about the church that I should go to? What do I feel called to? What about what I'm going to have for breakfast this morning? 
I think even worse though, worse than sort of this general anxiety we start to get about calling and like how deep does it go? I think that we use this calling language to cover over our own willfulness. We start saying, I just don't feel called. I just don't feel called to this relationship. I just don't feel called to that volunteer need. I just don't feel called to give financially right now. Brothers and sisters, for most of these things, we don't need a special invitation. We just need to use the wisdom that God has given us and make our own decisions, not to pass those off onto God. That God hasn't thrown a lightning bolt in my direction to make it clear to me what I should do or not do from moment to moment. I think we also need to be careful about saying, I really feel God is calling me to just fill in the blank. Whatever we fill in that blank with can never contradict what God has already called us to through the scriptures. We need to be very careful, I think, about putting words in God's mouth or taking words out of God's mouth. But I do think that God does call us. We do have a vocation as the sons and daughters of the king of the universe, the ones in whom God is well pleased. We're called to tend and care for all that God has created, to trust and obey all that God has commanded. And whatever specific kind of work or career or job or relationship that we might discern, it must first align with those general callings, those general vocations that are issued to all humanity and revealed through the scriptures. Freedom. I think freedom uh, seems like an easy one for us to understand. We love freedom, especially in America, especially in Christian America. We love to talk about our freedoms, what we are freed from, what we are freed to. But I've noticed that when we talk about freedom, we always talk about freedom in isolation from other things and other people. Freedom is about me, my salvation my rights, my choices. And it's because I think politically we talk about freedom being an individual right, something that should be guarded and protected, something that is inalienable and natural. It cannot be surrendered or sold, taken or given away, and it derives from our common humanity. And I think that this is true, but it's incomplete. Because as Christians, we assert that only God is truly free. Everything that derives from God is subject and dependent upon God. So when God places man in the Garden of Eden, God gifts man freedom. God shows man all of the fruit-bearing trees in the garden and gifts man the freedom to eat of any of them, save that one. This was not man's right to eat from the trees. It was a gift of God. Freedom has its origin as a gift from God. It's not a right for us to hoard. And as a gift, it comes with expectations and it comes with responsibilities. I think the freedom first needs to be used in service to vocation. The fulfillment of that call to work and take care of what God has created and entrusted us with. That is the first way that we use our freedom. 
In the garden, we are free to eat of the fruits of our labor and the goodness of God's grace. We are free to enjoy one another and the whole of creation. We are free to rest. But we are not free to be God. Though created in the image of God, we are not God. So when God issues a restriction to our freedom, it's not up to us to determine whether or not that restriction applies to us. God expects our trust and our obedience. God is the giver and we are the recipient. God has given us a place. God has given us a vocation. God has given us freedom. And now God gives us a prohibition. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. It's the single prohibition that God gives to humanity in the Garden of Eden. Everything else is freedom. Everything else is permission. Everything is to be enjoyed and experienced except this one thing, the fruit of a single tree. And to disobey this prohibition is to experience death. Why? Man, that's an old question. Why would God create something and then make it off limits? St. Augustine, who was so very, very sure about so many things, had no answer to that question. In his commentary on Genesis, he writes, If someone asks, therefore, why God allowed man to be tempted when he foreknew that man would yield to the tempter, I cannot sound the depths of divine wisdom, and I confess that the solution is far beyond my powers. There may be a hidden reason made known only to those who are better and holier than I. It's Augustine's way of saying, I don't know. St. John Chrysostom, another father of the church and a contemporary of Augustine, he anticipates this one particular way of interpreting the existence of this prohibition, what he calls the law, for really this is the first law that is given to humanity. St. John Chrysostom writes, I know that some at this point might accuse the lawgiver and assert that the law is the cause of the fall. We must absolutely oppose this argument. We must plainly argue and demonstrate that God gave the law not because he hated humanity or wanted to mark our nature with shame, but because he loved us and cared for us. I think many of us fall into this trap of thinking that God must have had it in for humanity by giving us free will and then creating something off limits. We just can't make sense of it any other way. God was up to some sort of trickery. God wasn't being fair. But it's not the existence of the prohibition that caused humanity to sin. It's the failure of humanity to trust God and to abide by God's commands that led and still leads to sin. With all that in mind, we turn now to Genesis 3. And we know this narrative well, but we're going to look at it closer anyway. Genesis 3 verse 1 begins a new story. Everything had been about creation. The narrative had centered upon God as the actor. But now we get the introduction of a new character, this serpent. 
And we're told that this serpent is more crafty than any of the other animals God had created. The word crafty here is not a negative word. This is not sort of like the mustache-twisting villain. Other places, it's translated as prudent or shrewd or clever. In fact, this same word used in Proverbs is something to aspire to, to have prudence. It's a trait that people with wisdom have. The serpent isn't being a, like villainous here, so much as the serpent is using its wits. And a quick note on the serpent. In the text, he's not the devil or Satan. That's a much later interpretation as we get further along in Scripture and we start to try to make sense of the stories that were told and how we got to the place where we are. But there's no indication in the text here and in the Hebrew mind that this was like Satan. And I think that this is important. I think it's important because it makes the story so much more relatable to us and so much more relevant to how we're tempted today because it doesn't take Satan to tempt us. It just takes a few well-placed questions and a seemingly harmless voice. And that's what the serpent was, a seemingly harmless voice asking a few well-placed questions. So the serpent asks the woman a question. Did God really say? That's another old question. I think we ask ourselves some version of that question all the time. Did God really say? And I think tone is important here. I I don't hear the serpent being like, again, villainous and antagonistic at this point. I think it's one of shock. Why would God say such a thing to you? Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And now we start to see that craftiness of the serpent. Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden? The serpent is twisting this prohibition, totalizing it. God had said, what? Don't eat from this one particular tree. And now the serpent is saying, you can't eat from the trees? Why would God say that? One thing was declared off limits, but the serpent exaggerates what God said. The woman at this point in the story, she corrects the serpent and is off to a really great start. She says, we may eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Oh, do you see what she did there? Did you hear what happened? She falls into the same trap that the serpent did. She exaggerated what God said. For God did not say you couldn't touch the tree. She added that in. This is important as well. What's the big deal, right? Like if you can't eat from the tree, then why even touch it? We often fall into the trap of putting words into God's mouth. We take God's generous freedoms and goodness and we restrict it further than God intended. We have this twisted idea that in doing so, in creating this hedge around the law, we're somehow improving upon it. This was the ideology of the Pharisees, and this is just another form of distrust of God. We don't think the law is adequate, so we beef it up. 
This robs us of our ability to trust in God and to experience all of the goodness that God has for us. We become legalistic and we become severe as a result. The serpent then becomes outright antagonistic towards the woman. He contradicts what God told the man and the woman. He tells them, you won't die. No, you'll become like God. This prohibition that God had given is now further twisted by the serpent as though it were an option, not a command. You don't have to obey that because you're not going to die. The serpent here is implying that God is keeping something from the man and the woman, something that would make them happy. God has something good, has knowledge, and God is going to keep it from you because God is selfish. The serpent claims that if they eat from the fruit of that tree, they will become like God, implying that they're not like God. But we learned two chapters before this that they are already like God. They are created in the image of God. Satan promises them something. The serpent promises them something that they already have and convinces them that they don't have it and that they need to transgress the command of God in order to get it. Death, this boundary that was given by God, is now made into a threat by the serpent. God had attached a limiting consequence to eating from the fruit of that tree, and the serpent has recast it as a dare. And then we see the woman act in response. She looks at the fruit of the tree, She sees that it is good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for for wisdom. Up to this point in Genesis, only God has looked upon things and judged them good. And here the woman is taking on the role previously held by God. She's looking upon something and judging it good. And she takes it and she eats and then she gives some of it to the man and he eats. And they look upon one another and their newfound knowledge isn't what they bargained for because they immediately see difference and they go to cover it up. Where before they had been in union with one another, now they begin to distance themselves from one another. By eating the fruit, the prohibition is violated. The freedom is perverted, and the vocation is neglected. The story that had been a story up to this point of trust and obedience now becomes one of crime and punishment. There are two different agendas in this particular text, in this story. The near agenda, the one that we see first, is about the immediate fracturing of the relationship between the woman and between the man, They cover themselves and they hide from one another. Their sameness is overshadowed by their sudden awareness of their difference. The far agenda, the thing that takes a little bit more unpacking, is that the recognition and the heeding of boundaries leads to well-being. If you look at this near agenda, this breaking of relationship between the man and the woman, and this far agenda, this breaking of relationship between God and God's creation, you can anticipate the two New Testament commandments to love God and to love one another. 
They're not explicit here in the text. And they aren't the same thing, but they're inseparable from one another. The fracture between God and the fracture between humans can only be healed by turning our attention from ourselves and to God and to one another. Despite this tree of knowledge of good and evil being the centerpiece of the text, I think that the text is not primarily about knowledge and ignorance. I think it's about trust and obedience. God has called us. God has given us freedom. And God has given us prohibition. And all of these things, our vocation, our freedom, and our prohibition, are necessary to have a divinely ordered life. I said earlier, again, vocation and freedom without prohibition is a self-centered kind of relativism. Freedom and prohibition without vocation is an aimless sort of nihilism. And vocation and prohibition without freedom is just a mindless legalism. When we lose the vision of a divinely ordered life, we lose the vision for who we are and who God is. And then any experience of suffering can shake us because we've lost our identity. This is really timely and real for me right now. The past two weeks have been really rough on me and my family. After nine years of service at my job, I learned that the university won't be renewing my contract for another year. And so I've got to look for a new job for the first time in nearly a decade. Seven days after that, we received word from our landlord that she is selling our house and that the new owner doesn't plan to keep us on as tenants. So for the first time in nearly a decade, we have to look for a new place to live. You can imagine the questions that have been rolling around in my mind for the last two weeks about where God is and what do I do? What are my options? All sorts of anxieties bubbling up to the surface. I shared with you earlier that we're beginning this new series, sermon series, as we move into this new season of the church calendar, this season of Lent. Let me read to you what the titles of those sermon series are again, from Advent all the way through Easter. Waiting. Identity. A new season has begun. When God provides. And enough. The prophetic irony is not lost on me. I should have sat down with Cameron and picked themes like stability, (laughs) affirmation, nothing is going to change, and pay raises for everyone. (laughs) Instead, I see the hand of God even in the selection of the texts from the lectionary and the themes that we're exploring together. And yes, that does some to mitigate the anxiety that I have over my job and my housing situation. But even further than that, like I think that this week's text is a theological critique of the kind of anxiety that I am prone to. 
You see, I think that oftentimes we feel anxiety and we try to control it by by circumventing God. We double down on the things that we can control or we hyper-focus on the things that are out of our control. We turn from God instead of turning to God. Again, Walter Brueggemann, that Old Testament scholar I talked about earlier, he looks at this text and he says that our mistake that we make is in choosing an autonomous kind of freedom a freedom that doesn't discern the boundaries of human life, of what is ours and what is God's, and this leaves us anxious because it feels like everything is ours and it's all our responsibility to carry it and to fix it and to do it alone. And our attempts to resolve our anxiety are primarily psychological and economic and cosmetic attempts. They all come up short because they don't address the root cause of our anxiety. This autonomous freedom, this lack of boundaries of not knowing what is ours and what is God's, who we are and who God is. Even our collective public life is premised on exploiting these anxieties. Consumerism and advertising tell us to seek security outside of God in the things that we can attain for ourselves. Our politicians call upon our fear and anxiety and cast themselves as the solution. But at the very root of all this, we doubt the providence of God, we reject his care, and we seek after and secure our own well-being. Because we think that God has given us less than what we need, that it can't possibly be enough or that there must be some catch, that God has to be holding out on us, so we need to go out and get ours. We strive to provide instead of seeking rest. We fail to trust God with our whole lives, and that will only result in our death. Walter Brueggemann writes, to trust God with our lives is to turn from the autonomous I to the covenanting thou. From our invented well-being to God's overriding purposes and gifts. So what prevents us from doing that? We live fractured lives. And as a result of those fractured lives, we don't remember who we are. We have lost that identity of the ones who were placed in the garden. We're the sons and daughters of God. We are the imago Dei, the bearers of the image of God. There's this poem that I've been reading several times a year for the past couple of years. It's called, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing, 
in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. This poem was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer just before his death, published in a collection of letters and papers that he wrote while he was in prison. I think it resonates with many of our experiences, but I know it resonates with mine. These internal struggles that I have, this disparity between what people look at me and say that I am, how they observe me moving through the world, and the conflict I feel in my own heart and soul. That turn at the end, that last line, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine, is a cry of surrender. It's a cry of revelation. It's a cry for remembrance. It's a cry for identity. Over the last two weeks, my family and I have experienced a deep divine current of peace underneath all of the fear, the frustration, and the anxiety. And it doesn't make everything magically okay. But it does invite us to trust in God during this time. It does remind us that Jesus is the one who makes our darkness tremble. That Jesus is the one that silences our fear. You see, God knows who you are. God knows who I am. Will you let your identity, your vocation, your freedom and God's prohibition be revealed to you? Can you allow yourself to be content with the garden in which God has put you to work and to rest? Will you listen to God and obey? Will you trust and will you find rest? God has gifted us so, so much. The fracture that opened in the garden was closed on the cross. Through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, we are put back together again. We are remembered. And each week, we are remembered through the act of participating in communion. So as I invite those who are serving the communion to come down and those who are lead us in a time of reflection to come back, I want to remind you that when we come to the table, we tear off a piece of bread, which is the body of Christ, broken for you, and we dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ poured out for you. We eat it, and in the brokenness of Christ's body, we are made whole. This table is open to all. You can come when you will. Let us pray together. God, you are the caller. Let us listen to your voice. God, you gift us freedom. Let us rest in your riches. 
God, you grant us boundaries. Let us abide in your goodness. Give us the wisdom and the power to trust and obey all that you have commanded. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.